Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're joined by internationally renowned herbalist, Dr. Christopher Hobbs. Dr. Hobbs is a fourth generation herbalist, a licensed acupuncturist, an herbal clinician, research scientist, consultant to the dietary supplement industry, expert witness, botanist, and mycologist with over 35 years of experience. He is also a prolific writer and has authored or co-authored over 20 books, including the new Christopher Hobbs Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide. Dr. Hobbs has lectured on herbal medicine worldwide. He earned his PhD at UC Berkeley with research and publication in evolutionary biology, biogeography, phylogenetics, plant chemistry, and ethnobotany. Time to dive deep into medicinal mushrooms with someone who has studied them for nigh on 40 years. Dr. Hobbs, thank you so much for joining us on Mushroom Hour. It's great, Darren. Thanks so much for inviting me, and I'm, it's a real pleasure to be here. Dr. Hobbs, seriously, the pleasure is all mine. Done a prolific amount of work in medicinal mushrooms, but really so many aspects of herbalism and what I like to kind of think of as holistic medicine. And I definitely want to get into that, what that framework implies and where society is going with all this. But before we dive into all of it, I'm always very curious to know that origin story and know how you maybe got on your path of herbalism. I don't want to call it alternative, but these modalities of healing and then mushrooms, you know, what were some of the sequence of events that led you to where, where you are today? Well, on my mom's side, my great-grandmother was an herbalist and my, my great-great-grandmother was a, was a community herbalist. And my grandmother was a community herbalist in Pasadena on Pasadena Boulevard. And she had an organic garden. She had solar water heating on the roof. And this is in the 1920s. And then she took the trolley down to LA to Chinatown and studied Chinese medicine and Chinese herbs. And this was again in the 20s. Skipped a generation with my mom. She was an artist. Uh, but my grandfather, my grandmother and great grandmother were definitely big influences. And then on my dad's side, he was a professor of botany and his dad was a professor of botany. So I kind of convergence there. And that was just my chosen path by by somebody other than me. So <clears throat> I just went with it and uh, developed a, a real passion for, for health. For some reason, I just became a health food freak. And in early days, I got sick because, well, my mom really gave us a, a pretty healthy diet when I was growing up. But turned out that that uh, then as soon as I left home, I got on the McDonald's diet and, you know, and I started eating candy and stuff, all the things that were forbidden. And I got pretty darn sick. And then I, I kind of stumbled into a health food store. I could hardly walk up a small hill without huffing and puffing. And this is, you know, my early 20s. So, so then uh, I went into a health food store. And I said, there's got to be something in here for me. And I saw Paul Bragg's book, The Miracle of Fasting. So then I started fasting and drinking juice. I got really, really sick after that. The healing went through the healing crisis and never looked back after that. Became a vegetarian lifelong pretty much and and so I, then i just got really interested in health and when my dad's plants he he was always showing me plants and talking about plants and i'd say we'd be driving along and i'd say what's that dad what, what tree is that and he'd go oh that's uh deodar cedar and so I, I i got a real passion for plants and 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 then you know started keying out plants and really got into that plus my grandmother and my mother's side were were practitioners, so I put that together with botany and became an herbalist. And, and in those days, um, when I was young, 
it wasn't really a job description. So I didn't know herbalism could be a job or you could make money out of it. <laughs> I just did it because that was my passion. So I pretty much followed my heart the whole way. And then in 1977, I read about a mushroom conference that was going on. Of course, I was out in the woods a lot. I'm a woodsy kind of person looking at flowers and trees and plants. And I noticed all these mushrooms and they're red and yellow and different colors. And I thought, wow, these mushrooms are pretty cool. And I want to know more. And so I saw this advertisement for a retreat up in Orcas Island that Paul Stamets put on, 1977. Mm. So I went up there and just got blown away by Dr. Guzman was there, the, the world's leading authority on psilocybin, and Dr. Smith, uh, Alexander Smith, who wrote most of the guides in those days. This was in the late 70s. And uh, so I got turned on to mushrooms and, and never looked back on that either. I just love to get out in the woods and tramp around and look for mushrooms. And it just, you know, opened up my heart and cracked me open. And then also in the mid 70s, it just turns out that I was living near the Oregon coast. And there just happened to be a movement up there at the time where you would see people walking around cow fields bent over with, with baggies, you know, picking psychedelic mushrooms. And I didn't know what that was all about. I had no idea. So I decided to try some. And at that point, I microdosed uh, for about nine months straight. And this is when I was in my you know, early 20s. That really precipitated a, a, a spiritual awakening, if you will, and the knowledge that we are part of everything. And, I, and especially being in the woods and all the tree spirits and mushroom spirits. I mean, that, that just was so incredible. And then later, I just got into a scientific. I just wanted to know more science. I got I was really a folk herbalist. So I went back to school and and I got an offer at Berkeley. And I, so I, then I got my Ph.D. at Berkeley in all kinds of interesting things about plants, chemistry, pharmacology, evolutionary biology, uh, ecology, which is a big one, you know, and, and related topics. So that's where I am now. And then I've been also involved in the natural products industry for years and years. And it's really the, the herbal community and the natural products community in the early days was all about community. The people were so incredible and so wonderful. So it was really just about the community. And so I got really involved in the herbal community, going to a lot of conferences over the years. And then the, the natural products industry, a lot of the herbalists. And in the, in the beginning, people were just doing it because they loved, loved to do it. Now, as you, if you go to Expo West in Anaheim, it's like corporate has taken over. Yeah. You know? That's when I kind of backed away from the industry and, and uh, started writing, well, more books and, and talking and speaking more. But A very succinct telling of what is a, a long and storied career, really. And what I'm struck by is that thinking, this guy was so ahead of your time. I mean, I know psilocybin mushrooms are on the rise, but you think about, you know, this idea of microdosing and finding health in a society full of really, I don't want to say disease, but you know, you do have fast food everywhere and they're all toxic these notions, toxic notions. It is a society of toxic notions. And that arc of your story in talking with so many people who are interested in the natural world or eventually have, you know, this amateur interest in mycology, a lot of people share a similar arc, which is basically seeing I love that phrase. I'm going to adopt that now. Seeing all these toxic notions and trying to find a way through it. And a lot of times it is through some, you know, aha moment of realizing something around your health, 
about finding healthier options or seeing there's just another path. And I guess just in terms of herbalism, did you come from a defined tradition? I know you said your great grandmother, I mean, talk about ahead of your time in the 1920s, talking about herbalism and solar water heaters. And what was there, I guess, how would you characterize that family tradition of herbalism? Was it something more generalist? You know, did it come from a certain discipline or, or school of herbalism? You know, folk herbalism or lay herbalism goes way, way back. Back to 7,000 years ago, they found fragments of yarrow and other herbs that would not be used for vegetables in fire pits, in ancient Stone Age fire pits that they unearthed. There's yarrow, there's other medicinal plants that that clearly are too bitter to be used as a food, they were using them for teas. So this goes way, way back and is passed on orally. So the oral tradition goes way back to the Greeks and Egyptians and Assyrians and so forth. And then there's a, there's a great written literature starting with the Greeks, ancient medicine. So obviously herbal medicine was all they had. They didn't have the local pharmacy to step into and, and buy a bottle of of Prozac if they were feeling anxious because there was a saber-toothed tiger chasing them. <laughs> they had to go with what they had. So so uh, it's passed on from generation to generation, really. And then, But there is an incredible literature coming from the ancients. I have a library here of about 8,000 books, including some books from the, from the 1500s and 1600s that are the actual books that were published then. And it's just such a joy to open those up and just feel wow, this was like 700 years ago. They were poring over this book and learning about how to use herbal medicine. And so it's really a, a lay tradition that's passed on and on. When you get to the more modern times, like like um, Dr. Shook, Dr. Christopher, and then into Michael, the next generation with Michael Tierra, Ed Smith, and and Susan Weed, and uh, and Rosemary Gladstar, you know, these are, these are my cohorts. So so we got interested and we all came together in conferences. The first herbal conference, really larger one, was in Brighton Bush Hot Springs in Oregon in 1980. So that was really the start of this new, gen well, my generation, my cohorts. And now there are so many younger herbalists out there, a second and third generation, even beyond that, herbalists that are so great and just doing tremendous things. So, so that's uh, and they're they're writing a lot of herbal books, like Michael Tierra has The Way of Herbs and some other herb books that are very well known, which were written in, I guess, you know, see, that would be probably written in the in the mid 70s, late 70s. That's when really this my generation started flowering with herbalism. And, and we took the books like the modern herbal from Maud Grieve, which was one of our major sources. And Maud Grieve was published in the probably in the 30s. So a modern herbal mod grieve. And of course, there's um, the herb book. And then there's Back to Eden. Those were the books that we we looked to. And the mod grieve, the modern herbal was really the Bible for really summarizing the ancient Greeks and the Renaissance herbalists and so forth. So there is a written history. There's an oral tradition and a practice. And then we've learned from each other so much. I'm a licensed acupuncturist too, so I wanted to go back and get a, a license so I could practice, so I could see patients. And really, a lot of it's about seeing people, and of course, teaching and writing. And but there's, you, you have to have some experience, hands-on experience, in my opinion. If you're going to be an herbalist, you. I went over to China and I studied Chinese medicine in China for 
a while and lived there and that was really eye-opening so you take all these influences and then integrate them and now it's really pretty much yeah. world herbalism out there but so many i have to thank so many teachers so many people that that i stand on the shoulders of so and and really teaching and learning is is just a continuum isn't it and and you might think well younger you know your generation now we're just starting out or whatever but but you're going to be the teachers at some point you're going to be teaching many other people and you're going to pass on this knowledge and so it, it really is a continuum it's a sacred continuum that and and our if our hearts in the right place if our hearts in it and we try to get the best knowledge the most accurate and the most true knowledge that we can and we're not selling out in the sense of oh i'm just going to say that rhodiola is good for this or that or you know on my website i want to sell more product you know, that's not where it's at for me, definitely. Uh, and most of my peers, we, we want to get to the, the true knowledge. Uh, how is this used? What's the right dose? Who's, who's it going to benefit? And, and it's the same with psilocybin and mushrooms. I mean, there are all these wonderful mushrooms, reishi being among them, of course. I've got reishis all over the place here. So I make, I teach people how to cook these up and make powders and take them at home. So there, there are so many healing mushrooms out there as you know lion's mane and and on and on and on there's so many great ones and then in my book which is the essential guide medicinal mushrooms the essential guide uh which just came out a couple of months ago i summarize all the science that has been done on uh, medicinal mushrooms and i also talk about the, the folk uses and the historical uses so i try to bring it together and really reference uh, it's all about really okay, where did you get that information? Because you can read anything on the web. And I ask people, where did that come from? I mean, that doesn't sound, that sounds kind of off the wall to me. And if they can't come up with something, oh, I read it somewhere or whatever. I mean, there's so much loose, people play loose and fast with the, with the facts out there. So you've got to go with sources that you can really trust and that really have spent their lifetime delving into these things and really care about the quality of the research more than profit. That term herbalism can get very hazy and it can become unclear, you know, how you separate fact from fiction, basically. And I appreciate that when you lay out that history, there's a very grounded scientific tradition. I mean, before we had modern, what people call allopathic medicine, I love how you said that herbal medicine was what you had. You didn't have a pharmacy. You didn't. So these were methods that were derived over thousands of years of usage with intelligent humans figuring out what worked and what didn't, maybe not in how we think of a clinical setting, but I'm sure as akin to a clinical setting as you could at the time. And I'm always impressed by how, despite the advances of allopathic medicine, there are certain things it doesn't have an answer for. And now we see huge amounts of people like myself and so many others that are coming back to say, what's this ancient tradition that people have been using for thousands of years? You know, what, what's the truth behind this? There must be something here. Uh, so I appreciate that you saying that you can't play too loose with that. And that gets to the heart of this question that I wanted to, to ask for you. What is that worldview? And we talk about herbalism and I love how you said it's not just, oh, this is good for this. I mean, what, if you can encapsulate it, I mean, this is courses in a lifetime of work, but uh, what, what is that worldview around herbalism, how you see human health, how these natural substances are able to assist the human body? 
you know, broadly, very broadly, what is that definition of herbalism and maybe some of its core tenets for you and your experience? Well, it's to me, and, and this is after so much, so many years of experience, but not only that, but practicing it personally, practicing health personally, what, what I want is a higher level of physical, mental, spiritual health. And I want to expand. I don't want to be limited. I don't want to be narrow. I want to expand and I want to encompass more possibilities rather than few. So any dogma, any religion, anything that is going to limit me and narrow me down, <clears throat> I'm going to have to reject that because I think we need to experiment. And, and at the end of the day, it's about health. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for health, for physical, spiritual, and emotional health. And herbs can help us get there. They're, they're part of nature. They're part of us. We're part of the same web. These molecules that are in plants like rhodiola or astragalus or echinacea, those molecules, we, we co-evolved with those. We were eating those at some point. So I can go back to, and this is where I've come to, is that herbs are food medicine. They're more food medicine. They're not drugs. I'm trying to get away from drugs. I'm trying to get away from corporate. Yeah. I'm trying to get away from profit-centered. And basically, it's greed. I was reading an article in the New York Times today about greed, and we're we're drawn by greed, and and it's and it can be micro greed. Oh, I want that. I want that. I want that. And if we go with it, and if we're just getting caught up in our thoughts that are just swirling around all the time, which scientists even say 50% of the time we're not conscious of our thoughts. They're just roaming around, and who knows what? And and they're they're usually giving us bad advice. Yeah, <laughs> you know those thoughts unconsciously they're giving us bad advice so you know we're not even aware of it so my point being is that that if we're conscious that we could become more and more conscious we're working with our plant allies and our mushroom allies they're part of us we're very closely allied and it's easier to get away from this greed and profit oriented syndrome that so much of our culture has bought into in medicine, in health, in education, you name it. It's always just what's what's in it for me and what's the profit here. And we have to we have to get away, we have to be more conscious. And the only way to get away from it is to be more mindful. If we're if we practice mindfulness and meditation, then I think that is a big step. Even 10 minutes a day, even 10 minutes twice a day is amazing what it can do for our consciousness. And I will add in that as well, microdosing. Psilocybin is an ally that can help open instead of narrowing down. That's the that's one of the big issues with humans and especially in our societies that it starts narrowing us down. It defines who we are, it defines our limits. Well, we're consumers. <laughs> we're consumers and we consume drugs and we for health. And what is medicine? That's the other thing is how do you define medicine? Right. And most people, if you ask them, well, what's medicine? And they're going to show you their bottle of, of Prozac or whatever. That's medicine. That's not medicine. That's corporate. I don't know what to call it. It's not medicine. It's usually more damaging than it does good. What is medicine is a hug from your loved one. It's med meditation. It's being out in the forest and, and opening up to the spirits that are all around us and the aromas of the trees and the fragrance and the wind in the trees. That, and then we see these gorgeous mushrooms 
all over the place, popping up red and yellow and orange. That's medicine. That's the medicine right there. And our garden, that's the, the medicine is out there. I've got a garden right outside. I've got all these medicinal plants right in my front yard, oregano, thyme, rosemary. You said you had you 200 you species it. of herbs right there on the property. 200 species right here. And then the tomatoes, the cucumbers, that's my medicine. The fig, I've got a big fig tree. That's my medicine. And so I want my medicine to be broad. I want it to be to be something that is not profit and, and greed-centered. Uh, I, I reject so-called medicines that are profit and greed-centered. And I think we have to start doing that more, questioning, is this medicine or is it not medicine? And uh, so mushrooms are great allies. They're great allies. They're, they're rooted in the earth. They're rooted in the forest. In fact, they're an integral part of the forest. We know that. They're all interconnecting trees and shrubs, and all plants have, if, you, if I had, a, I don't have a plant at hand right here, but all plants have a whole microflora in their leaf. It's like our gut. In their leaf, they have a whole microflora of endophytes growing in, in the leaf and thriving there and helping. So it's a connection. It's all about connections. I'm connected to mushrooms. I'm connected to the earth. I'm connected to these plants that are growing around me here. I'm not connected to these pills that come out of a manufacturing plant with synthetic chemicals polluting the air and plastic bottles. That is not my medicine. Mm. What I'm taking away from this is this idea of increased consciousness, mindfulness, spirituality, like you said, without necessarily a religious context or institution. Those are core elements of the herbalist path. And that's that's what I felt is that this is more about a worldview. It's about seeing the world differently and that even trying to put a firm definition of what herbalism is, I mean, it should defy definition and incorporate all of those mental, physical, spiritual, all those aspects conducive to human health should be incorporated in and integrated as effective methodologies. And then you decide how to play with those. I mean, you talk about being out in the forest, being out in nature, that's a huge theme running through pretty much every podcast I do is the healing effects that that has on the body and the mind and that much, much avoided word spirit, you know, something that I think gets left out of any consideration about medicine or health too often. It's that idea of the spiritual self and how we're nurturing that element of who we are. It's such an integral part of who we are as humans. And I was going to ask how then you've married these together because I see you've taken that really holistic view of health and really how that's related to homeostasis with our local environment and medicine is really all around us with these plants and mushrooms that we've co-evolved with. It doesn't come through a pill, but then you've taken insights from scientific modernity and it sounds like you've been able to discover more and more and really deepen your practice. So, so what's that been like? What is that relationship with reductionist science marrying with this as broad as it can be holistic view of medicine that you've had. Yes. Well, that's the, that's another interesting part of it, isn't it? And yes, our mind needs to be fed as well as our body and spirit. And my, my mind, uh, instead of just thinking about problems or whatever, I like learning. I like, I like to grow my mental faculty to evaluate and, and find truth in that realm, in that frame. And so going through 10 straight years of, of heavy science training, I mean, that, that was, that really also 
made a difference in my life. Because after the 10 years of heavy science training at Berkeley, I realized I know nothing intellectually. People asked me, well, what did you get out of that? And I said, it taught me that I know nothing. <laughs> it's so amazing. We can't, we don't even have a clue, but, but you know, it's still incredible. You spend a whole career just trying to figure out one little mechanism, you know, and I can talk chemistry. You want to talk plant chemistry. I can talk chemistry, pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, receptor site binding. I've, I've got, I can talk, talk about it all. I love that stuff, but it's just, it's just part of the mix. It's part of the whole mix. And, and uh, I like reading the clinical trials because if it shows us, okay, what's the right dose? How many people out of a big cohort of say 300 people is it, is it, and how it is affecting them? Is it going to give them any side effects like upset stomach or whatever? And then they do, for instance, mushrooms. If you look at the science on mushrooms, like turkey tail, PSK was, was really, PSK is polysaccharide crestin. That's in Japan. They basically started growing turkey tail mycelium in a big vat. Mm. They got the pure mycelium, so there's no substrate. They drain the and centrifuge all the liquid off. And they had pure turkey tail mycelium. Then they used a number of steps, extraction steps with water and alkali to concentrate the beta-glucans, the immunomodulating beta-glucans, concentrate those. And then they made this crude uh, turkey tail extract called PSK, and in China it's PSP. And so they did all these clinical trials on, on uh, PSK and PSP. You take one, and almost all of them are on the same plan. You take one group that has GI cancer, like stomach cancer, colorectal cancer, and you have one group, and you give them just the chemotherapy. And the other group, you give chemotherapy plus the PSK. And then over a they look, they follow them up, and they look at the five-year survival rate, and they find that the people that got the turkey tail plus the chemo had up to 33% higher five-year survival rate than the, than the group that only had the chemo. And not only that, but they had a lot less side effects like nausea, hair loss, fatigue, and so forth. If they took the mushroom extract, which makes perfect sense because if you're taking chemo, that, I mean, that's, an, that's a really intense immunosuppressant. It's going to kill your stem cells and your bone marrow. It's going to kill off so many immune cells. It's going to lead to neutropenia and immune suppression big time. And it makes absolutely no sense to suppress your immune system when you're trying to you know, deal with cancer. And studies over and over show the better your immune status, the more likely you're able to do well if you have cancer and you have longer survival times and you feel better. And the immune system is so centered in the gut. That's, and we could t do a whole show just on the immunity. 60, 70% of our immune tissue is in our gut. And about 80, 70 to 80% of our serotonin is produced in the gut. So what goes into our, what we eat and what's happening in our gut has a lot to do with our, how our immunity is and how we relate to our environment and the world. And mushrooms can, turkey tail can really counteract this to a certain extent, this amazing immune suppression that happens through chemotherapy. And so you get the killing power, I guess, of rapidly growing cells with chemotherapy. And then nowadays they're studying microdosing chemotherapy. So that would be my preference is the micro kind of really low dose chemo plus a lot of turkey tail and a lot of reishi. 
and that's going to be a much better plan. Of course, then a whole program for health with diet and everything else. That intuitively sounds so much better. And knowing people in my life who have gone through chemotherapy, how has no one thought of that microdosing before? Ease back on the chemotherapy, put plenty of medicinal mushrooms in there to support the immune system. And you just had the mind-blowing statistic that a lot of us know generally how important the gut is overall to our health. But I think just quick hit, 60% of the immune system is located in the gut. That's massive suddenly that becomes one of the most important things you have to look at when it comes to health. And I do want to talk a little bit about the immune system, just because when most of us think of medicinal mushrooms, pretty much any medicinal mushroom you think of, especially when you talk about beta-glucans or people always throw around, oh, it's immune supporting, it's immune enhancing, but it's not exactly clear how that always works. You know, yeah, it is supporting the immune system, but I guess... If you can give us the fundamentals of the immune system or or other systems of the body, I'm sure there are whole podcast series that exist around this, but just generally, those fundamentals and then how the substances in mushrooms cultivate a healthier immune system or maybe you know another system of the body. Yes, well, the health properties of mushrooms are are several fold and one is that mushrooms are the highest fiber food on the planet. Beans are a very high fiber food, but mushrooms have up to 55 or even turkey tail, even up to 60% soluble and insoluble fiber. So basically most of the people in, the, in our country get about 15 grams of fiber per day. The government recommends 25 grams per day and traditional cultures get around 50 to 60 grams of fiber per day. Wow. So we're way low on fiber. And remember that animal products have zero fiber. Dairy, eggs, meat have zero fiber. We need a lot more fiber in our diet. A number, so many studies, and I recommend you to a book called The China Study, which there's a, a Campbell, which there's a new edition of. And he basically reviews, he did a lot of experiment, experimentation himself. But he basically reviews decades of research showing that if you keep animal products below 5% of total calories and you basically embrace a whole foods plant-based diet, then you're half as likely to have chronic illnesses and you're going to live longer. And it's so much healthier for the planet for many reasons. So going back to mushrooms, mushrooms are one of the greatest bridges to a more plant-based diet because they have kind of a mouthfeel like meat. They have high protein like meat. They have incredible amounts of vitamins, minerals. The protein is very high quality and absorbable. And then of course, all the fiber. So, so it's, a great, it's a great bridge over to a more plant-based diet for people. Just adding shiitake, adding lion's mane, maitake into the diet every day. And then making powders and adding that to your food, your soups and so forth, and then taking them as supplements or adding them to smoothies. So we want to add more mushrooms because of the fiber, because of incredible amount of nutrition, and because mushrooms, literally, if you were growing sources of protein that come from veg vegetable sources versus animal, it's like 500 times more energy efficient to get the protein from vegetables than it is from cows and, and animal products. So it's just astounding how much more 
environmentally friendly it is and how much more efficient it is energy wise. Yeah. So those are some of the things. But then you, you asked more about the beta glucans. Well, the beta glucans are cell wall, part of the cell wall polymers that are very tough. They're bound tightly to chitin. And if we take a reishi mushroom and boil it up or, or put it in a pressure cooker and cook it for a half an hour, then let it cool down for another hour and then blend it up. So that's softening up the reishi, blending it up and then say drying it in a fruit leather tray of a dehydrator and powdering it, then we can add that. You can eat the whole fruiting body. So that's that's one of my main points in my teachings is don't throw the fruiting body away. So that's the problem with tinctures. And also tinctures, keep in mind that beta-glucans have zero solubility in alcohol. So if you make a tincture of reishi, you're getting zero amount of beta-glucans. The beta-glucans, yes, there are other types of smaller molecular weight compounds in mushrooms like phenolics and terpenes that have some immunomodulating effects. But the beta-glucans by far are the most important, the most highly studied, have the most research worldwide. And we have ancient receptors in our gut that recognize these beta-glucan pieces once we break it down. They're very, very ancient. They go way back to, to when we diverged from fungi. Remember that animals are closer to fungi phylogenetically than plant. So mushrooms are more like animals than they are like plants. Right. And therefore we share some things in common like glycogen. We both store gly energy as glycogen for one thing, but we have learned to recognize fungal beta-glucans and other molecules like chitin for our entire evolutionary process. And so when you eat a reishi mushroom or break it down so you can drink it or eat it, then these, these things are taken up by special cells called M cells in the gut lining. And then those are shuttled in by macrophages will engulf those and start breaking them down and activate them into other little pieces. And those pieces are displayed on the outside of the macrophages. And the macrophages go around to all these other types of cells like dendritic cells and of course T cells and B cells. And they start activating them and turning them on and getting them going. And so it's, it's very complex. I do have a couple of charts in my book, and I do discuss it in my book, how the mushroom beta-glucans and the chitin works to activate our immune response. But it's even deeper than that. And, and one could write a whole book on what we know about how once the effector cells are activated, like T cells, B cells, dendritic cells, macrophages, monocytes, those are all become activated. They start secreting and they start doing their thing. And so then they start producing cytokines of various kinds like tumor necrosis factor and interleukin, different interleukins and so forth. So there are all these effector molecules which will target bacteria, viruses. So it basically, by eating the, the reishi or the turkey tail, we're, up, we're upgrading, we're upregulating our body's immune system to be able to go after viruses and bacteria and cancer cells big time. So you're getting a huge boost in effect, effective immune strength to be able to go after these pathogens and protect us against various types of diseases. And I appreciated how you broke that down in the book. And that's why I wanted to highlight that because I think for a lot of us, we know that connection is there, like I said, medicinal mushrooms, immune health, but to understand the interstitial steps and actually what's happening it just reinforces, yes, these are effective tools to boost your immune system, 
This is not just hype or marketing. There are receptors within our body that basically take these constituent components and use it to activate elements of our immune system. It, it just reinforces in your head why this works, why this is effective, and why we should do this. And I love how you brought that up about the fruiting body and about that importance of fiber. That's something we don't always think of. You know, I know a lot of people tout that benefit of dual tinctures where you're using a hot water extraction and an alcohol extraction to make sure you get the water-soluble elements as well as the fat-soluble elements. But to bring in this piece of fiber and just how important that is, it's just something I really hadn't appreciated before. Right. And that's why I make tea powders. I make tea powders in my dehydrator and I cook just about every type of mushroom and I make these tea powders. And then the tea powders, you can add to soups, you can add to stir fry, you can sprinkle them in, it has a nice mushroomy flavor. And it's easy to put in a smoothie or a drink. To make a tea, you just add a teaspoon in warm water or hot water and drink it. And you're getting everything in the mushroom. Now the problem with, even there are some products out there where they boil the mushrooms and you know there, I know there are a number of products like this. So they're making an extract from the mushroom. They're removing the water soluble components and they're rejecting and throwing away the rest of it. Well, you know, that's the best part of it that they're throwing away. That's my message. Because without further processing, only about 20% of the beta-glucans that are in, in this mushroom here, only about 20% are water-soluble and bioavailable. Even after pressure cooking and grinding them up, you're still only going to get maximum maybe 30% of what is actually in the mushroom. That's why I say cook the mushroom, even if it's a hard mushroom like reishi, pressure cooker, grind it up, put it in your food dehydrator, make a wafer, pull it out. Here's a mushroom and greens wafer that I make right here. I can show you some. Well, I guess your audience can't see it. But you see, I make these wafers, and then yeah. I just took that out of my fruit leather tray and break it up. And then I take these wafers, and I just put them in a cup of hot water, and then I've got my, my healing drink. With this method, I'm getting 100% of the beta-glucans. I'm getting 100% of the chitin. I'm getting all the fiber. I'm getting the vitamins and minerals. I'm getting the phenolics. I'm getting the terpenes. I'm getting everything that is in here. So extraction is only partially effective. And then the other problem with, with you know, there are some products out here I know that I'm not going to say the name, but that sell these bags of powder. These are extracted these are tea extracts where they just make a tea and throw the, all the fiber away. And then they, they have to dry that reishi tea onto something. They have to dry it onto a carrier. So typically the carrier is maltodextrin. That is the most common carrier. So envision, if you will, they're grinding up all these big vat of reishi. They're cooking it at a high temperature. They're getting the dark tea out of it. They're throwing the, all the mark away, which is the residue. They're taking that liquid. Okay, how are they going to turn that into a powder? Well, you've got to simmer it down until it's a pretty thick. It's pretty thick. Or either that or you spray dry it in a vacuum onto a carrier. And the carrier has to be like cellulose or maltodextrin because that's what absorbs the liquid and then it turns it into a powder. And then you dry it. You pull all the moisture off in the vacuum chamber. That's called spray dryer. So you spray dry it and and the problem is that when you when you smell a lot of these extracts, I'm not signaling out this company, but if but a lot of extracts that you smell smell like cookies or graham crackers or something. That's because it's got maltodextrin in it. And we don't know how much maltodextrin they're putting in there. I've been in the industry a long time. Most herbal extracts out there 
are spray dried on maltodextrin and they don't disclose how much maltodextrin is there. They only say it's a one to five extract or whatever. Plus, again, they're throwing away probably the best part of the mushroom. This is the ancient reishi right here. This is Ganoderma lingzure. So they're throwing away most of the, the medicine, in my opinion, and they're, they're spraying it onto a carrier. I think you just blew the lid for most of us off what we think about medicinal mushroom powders and how we're going to look at these products now. Because the assumption is when you get a powder that this is powderized mushroom. But no, that's actually a tea that they're drying onto a carrier that then is making that powder. You just intuitively, you know, that's not what you thought you were buying. And the method you laid out seems far more approachable. And that's something I'm taking away from at least your practice is that you're, or what you're creating basically for your own health are things that require processes that really everyone can perform. I mean, this is like herbal medicine for the people. <laughs> that's the point. And not only that, but you know, these pouches, these pouches cost $36. Expensive, incredibly expensive. Yeah. They cost $36. Well, you know how much reishi is actually, reishi is in here. It's probably, you know, several fruiting bodies. But if you were to cook and grind up several fruiting bodies in your kitchen and dry it, you would have a much bigger pouch. What they're offering for $36 here is 1.6 ounces. 1.6 ounces you're getting for $36. Here's another one. This brand cooks and grinds up the whole mushroom. This is eight ounces for the same price. And you're getting all of it. Probably one of my biggest messages is don't throw the mushrooms away. That's where the medicine is. That's a great message and really fits into this whole framework of herbal medicine is that holistic use the whole thing. And you were talking about microdosing with psilocybin. And that's one thing you see happening there is that people latch onto one compound, extract that. And that's just this reductionist methodology. And maybe it's just always tied to some profit motive is we want to extract the most potent, put it into a new formulation, put it in an easy delivery mechanism. And that's just what we're left with when we're missing out on the whole medicine. And you mentioned, you know, we're getting the chitin. Sounds like fiber is incredibly central. Just a quick snippet or soundbite on why that is because now you've reinforced to me how important that is to get that chitin get that fiber out of i mean out of our vegetables but especially out of our mushrooms w what is fiber really doing for our body that makes it so important oh so many things fiber does so fiber is i mean we we evolved with fiber do you think do you think most uh, stone age people were eating animals and and drinking milk and and having an omelet in the morning. No, they're not. They were doing that. They were eating roots. They were eating leaves. They were eating lots and lots of fiber, nuts, seeds, fruit. Now and then they could catch an animal and cut up the steaks or whatever. Fine, they would get it. But it's not so easy. It's a heck of a lot easier to dig out a root and to pick some fruit and nuts and seeds. So our whole evolutionary process was based on fiber, a maximum amount of fiber in our body. There's so many ways that we know that fiber can help. First of all, it retards the amount of cholesterol that we take up from our, our diet. That's one thing. Blood cholesterol is the biggest killer in, in the more developed world. Cholesterol, and especially LDL, low-density low lipoproteins, those are the killer out there because our body 
looks at them as they don't want them in there. And when they start getting into our body, especially after they're cooked and processed, uh, if, if they get into our body, our immune system automatically jumps on those, starts to produce foam cells, what we call foam cells, and they're the bloated LDL particles. And then those bind to the, to the wall of our arteries. And then that starts a whole nother immune process in there, which causes scarring and hardening of our arteries. This is the biggest killer in the world right there. So fiber, by increasing our fiber, we're going to help prevent that absorption and the whole process of that LDL getting, getting bloated and making foam cells. That's one thing. Another thing is it helps really stabilize. And there's plenty of research that shows the more fiber we get, the more stable our blood sugar is. The more stable our blood sugar is, the less likely the insulin receptor sites on our cells are to become adulterated and insensitive. And this is what leads to diabetes. You probably know that diabetes is, a, is a basically in every country of the world that eats processed foods, it's, it's like a scourge. It's a horrible disease to get, and yet it's so common. And then obesity, that's a whole nother show in itself. Obesity, the, the whole process of it, why it's happening. Fat cells are, are veritable hormone producers. I mean, they produce a whole plethora of hormones that upregulates inflammation in our body, among other things. So fiber is so important for, for blood sugar stabilization and protecting our insulin circuitry for reducing uh, LDL absorption, LDL fat absorption and cholesterol regulation. It also gives our bowel something to work with, it, to something to grip onto and to work with. Try eating a, a completely fiber-free diet. You'll get constipated in no time. So it leads to increased regularity. And then finally, when fiber breaks down in our colon, in our gut, bacteria, it has something to work on. We know very well that we have this incredible microflora, mainly centered in our colon. And those uh, bacteria, when they start working on fiber, that's their food. So the lining of our colon and all of those cells in there, all the epithelial cells, that all needs energy. And when we eat fiber, those cells can get energy. Our colon is going to be a lot healthier at the end of the day than if we're eating a lot of animal products and we don't get the fiber. They're starving. They're basically trying to break down fat and animal products. That's not going to be a good look down there. That was exactly the kind of answer I wanted. And it just highlights the unsung hero of medicinal mushrooms, which is fiber. And really something about our health that I, for one, don't think about enough. And I know so many people aren't thinking about our fiber intake. You know, we want the beta-glucans, give me the terpenes, all these things. But fiber is at the core and is the most easily attainable or available, quote unquote, medicinal compound out there. And so for you, when you're working in your practice, how do you recommend people integrate medicinal mushrooms into their health regimen? You know, and obviously this comes with the caveat of you're not giving anyone specific health advice, but how do you recommend people integrate? Is it just, hey, eat a lot of mushrooms, that's your best bet. I mean, how do you recommend that people integrate this into their regimen? Well, that's literally it, isn't it? I mean, you can use dried mushrooms, like this is a bimu air, basically. It's a jelly fungus that's been dried. And you can buy bags and bags of these things, but, <clears throat> but you just rehydrate them and you put them in soups, stews, cut them up, 
you know, and you can make salads. You can make people make salads out of baimuir. And then the rishi, you know, they're, they're easy to grind up and cook, cook and grind up. Turkey tail, certainly easy to pick in the forest. If you go out and know what turkey tail looks like, you can grind those up. I've got so many more. Oh, and then let me show you the, the cordyceps. These are really cool here. I can reach them without pulling my mic off. These are great to, um, to cook with. You can make salads. You can cook them and do lots of things with them, put them in smoothies. So there's so many ways to ingest them. So I call them mushrooms food medicine. Don't think of them as medicine, but they're food medicine. And so they should be eaten. And, and then not only that, but then when you eat more mushrooms, you're getting higher fiber. You're getting the vitamins and minerals and protein. You're less likely to go to animal food. And you're, you feel satisfied when you eat a lot of, like I eat four or five, six, seven shiitakes in a sitting. I, they're just so delicious. And with a stir fry, I can eat, I could eat six shiitake fruiting bodies and they're delicious. And then, you know, of course, I've been off meat for a long, long time or uh, animal products. But right. if you do like eating meat, then maybe you'll just eat less meat because you just feel satisfied. You're getting the dense protein. You're getting the dense vitamins and minerals. You're getting all the fiber. You're feeling satisfied. So mushrooms are very satisfying when you add them. And they're so delicious. Lion's mane, uh, maitake, shiitake, of course, is my favorite. And on and on and on. There, there are just so many more that you can cook with. I do a whole slideshow. I just did it yesterday. Actually, I just presented it on cooking with mushrooms, cooking with mushroom medicines. And uh, you'd be surprised at how many people around the world mushrooms are incorporated as a very important part of their diet. Lion's mane, especially, and especially jelly fungi like wood ear and so forth. Those muir, those are a central part of so many millions and millions of people's diets every day. Therefore, they must be doing something right. I mean, they, they go for it. They love the flavor and they're so much more efficient to grow. I mean, there's just nothing really not to like about it. But then if you want to go to medicine, you know, more of a formal medicine of a powder that you can supplement your diet with, that's, that's fine too. Just make your powders. And I tell how to do it step by step and actually show how to do it in the book. There are pictures step by step how to do it. So you can make your own powders. And I recommend making up a, a big batch of powder. You can add it to just about anything that you're cooking, soups, stew, stir fries or anything, to add a mushroomy flavor and get all this nice fiber or just drink it. I have a smoothie every day. In fact, I've still got a blender top here. It's <laughs> basically tons of mushrooms in here. I do a lot of organic strawberries, blueberries, blackberries. I also can my own elderberry juice, and I put lots of elderberry juice in there. So that's my medicine right there. So I just recommend incorporate it in your life more. Forget this stuff about, oh, I've got to have standardized, you know, I mean, it's good to have, if you've got a fiber to get standardized beta-glucans, like this product is guarantees 15% beta-glucan. So, so that's good to know because a lot of people are selling products, as you are aware, that uh, are full of starch. And you can do the starch test for that matter. I'm, I'm sure you've had people on that have talked about the starch test. Let's elucidate that a little bit, because I think right now you're kind of changing our perception on how to integrate medicinal mushrooms into our diet. It's a common question I get all the time is what kind of product should I be using? You know, what kind of specialized quadruple extraction do I need to get the highest intention, best medicine? And you've just made this eminently approachable, just saying, hey, 
eat more mushrooms. If you find mushrooms, you can dry them, make your own powders. Here's a step-by-step guide. And this is taking this out of as much as we all, I think, see a lot of hope in medicinal mushrooms and the medicinal mushroom boom and the rise of this cognizance. If we take it out of that kind of commercial sphere, sphere and say the real takeaway for this movement is all of us can just eat more mushrooms and see more medicinal benefit. Uh, but yes, talk about that starch issue and what is going on with most of the products out there. Well, if you take your average bag of, of powder or capsules, even worse, like if you if you take some capsules here on a regular pr- product, this is a lion's main product here. I've got the capsules. So I'm going to open a capsule and and I put it in a little bit of water and stir it in there, maybe two capsules. And then I take some Lugol solution, L-U-G-O-L, Lugol solution that you can get on Amazon or wherever. And this is iodine. This is iodine solution. You're going to put several drops of the iodine solution in that water where you opened up the capsule and you stirred it up. And everybody that is listening should be testing your products out there. Some are full of starch. And I've got scientific studies to back that up. And I'm personal experience, too, because I've tested a lot of products that are out there in the marketplace already. You just go ahead and put your iodine in there. If it turns instantly bright blue, you've got tons of starch in there. This is a classic starch test that had been used for, I don't know, 100 years. What happens is you've got these chains of glucose molecules that are connected in a certain way, bonds, that is starch. So that's what starch is. When you put iodines in the solution, the iodine molecule fits in, in this area between the molecules, and it happens to just then reflect the blue light. It becomes resonant to the sense that it's going to reflect blue light. And so then you've got this classic test that has been proven over and over again to see how much starch is in your product. Are you really want to pay $38 for a bag of that's about 60 or 70% brown rice starch? Just cook up some brown rice, folks. Uh, you know, don't pay $38. Test your products. And, you, and I don't take my word for it. Citizen science, test your own products. That's empowerment right there. What a simple tool to empower ourselves to make better decisions about what products we're getting out there. And like I said, you've hammered home to me that it's not necessarily about products. And there's nothing wrong with that. Companies are great. They're trying right. to put this into the mainstream, trying to give people options. But just from hearing what you're putting down in terms of research and actual decades of experiential work with these medicines, is that eating it, consuming the whole mushroom, powderizing the whole mushroom is the way you derive the most benefit from it. By far. And with this, do you have any examples from your own practice, obviously without revealing anything about anyone's personal health or anything like that, but just any examples of how anecdotes, you know, we'll we'll qualify it with anecdotes, but of how people have integrated medicinal mushrooms into their diet and seen great change. Because I don't want to just say, you know, what mushroom is good for what, but just any example you can think of where you've had people successfully just add in this practice of eating more mushrooms and what changes they've experienced? Well, in my clinical practice, I'm not in a clinic now, I'm practicing online, but when I had a clinic, which was a number of years, I prescribed so much turkey tail and so much reishi. And reishi is one of the greatest of all because it has so many different benefits. And if you look at the traditional medicine, it was used for chronic respiratory tract ailments, 
like chronic allergic rhinitis, for example. I know I've seen so many people be helped by reishi extract that have hay fever, allergic, uh, respiratory allergic reactions. So that's number one. Number two, it also is a very good liver protector. So you get really good liver protection out of it. And I, I saw at one point I was seeing over 100 patients with that had hepatitis C infections. So I used both a shiitake extract and reishi extract for quite a few years. And I, I got the numbers. I got the, because we did liver panels and so forth, viral loads. I saw great benefits with mushroom concentrates, both shiitake and reishi. And there are also clinical studies uh, and, and plenty of research on reishi as a liver protector. So that's number two. Number three, there are some clinical trials showing that it increases our immune system vigilance against cancer cells. And there, there are some clinical trials, which I detail in my book, actually showing that people do better long-term, long-term survival, less side effects from chemo, again, like turkey tails, from using reishi. So I, I do review those, those studies. And finally, reishi is the spirit medicine. So in my book, I detail this quite a bit, but I talk about the ancients when they went out and they hiked in the forest way up high, because the reishis apparently in the old days, they were only growing up high in the mountains. So they had to make a pilgrimage up in the mountains to find the reishi. And Ling Zhur, the Chinese name for Rishi, had something to do with the mountains and, and the tree in, up in the mountains. So probably from what we know. And so they, when they found a Rishi up there, they would be, you know, incredibly happy. And the ancient texts say that people would take pieces of it and eat it straight away. And if you find some fresh Ganoderma oregonense, which grows on the West Coast, or you find some fresh... Ganoderma sugi, which is a big one that grows on hemlocks typically, the leading edge of it is very tender, and you can actually take pieces of that off and eat it. I do that whenever I see one, and the feeling that you get is very experiential. You feel like your chest and your heart is opening, so it has a, reishi has a really opening effect for the chest, for the lungs, and for the heart, and it's considered good for the heart and the circulation, yes, but also it's a spirit mushroom. And the ancients talked a lot about uh, reishi being a spirit mushroom and also a longevity mushroom. It said that if you eat reishi every day, that you will be like the immortals. So I know that this kind of talk is a little bit over the top for our scientific minds, but I, I kind of like that, the ancient texts, the way they talk about reishi, the reverence they have for it and it being a spirit mushroom. And they are so beautiful. They are so gorgeous and, and when you find them in the wild, you do feel a special spirit to them. Absolutely. There's so many mushrooms where you find them. There's something else that happens to you seeing this beautiful organism out in the wild. And actually, you know, this gets into two areas that I wanted to talk about. And I was going to apologize for getting too off kind of the scientific formalized trail. But one of them was maybe how ritual or intentional preparation plays into your practice of herbalism. Because from what it sounds like, there are certain ancient uses and things, again, that were derived over centuries of use that were effects that herbalists knew that these plants and mushrooms had that seemed to dovetail with clinical kind of modern scientific research and gets borne out 
in these trials and findings and we reduce things down and basically find that it has the effect they were saying it has in many cases. But this other element of kind of the spirit, maybe of the etheric, you know, the, the, something else that's happening to us, how much does that play into your practice of herbalism? You know, whether that's preparing something, I've heard of people preparing things on certain days of the week under certain phases of the moon, or maybe just it's an intention that you're setting when you're in this preparation process. Does that play into it for you at all? Or am I off the trail here? As a lay herbalist to start with, I'm very much into the spirit. I don't think of it as a magical property though. I don't think of it as as some kind of a supernatural property. I, I think that the magic and the spirit that comes and the intention that you're talking about, it connects us to our wider um, web that we're that we're a part of, and so being in the woods. I mean, frankly, I mean, I I make lots of mushroom medicine and I take mushroom medicine. It's a way to bring the nature in into my life and into my kitchen, into my body, and that's why they're such good allies. I mean, I can't. I just nothing to grab onto when someone hands me a pill of of a synthetic drug. There's you know I just don't relate to it. Right. If I've got a, a reishi powder. That connects me with with the, with the tree, with the earth that's beneath it, and it's all sacred to me, and it's all very very much part of who I am. I, I arose from that. I'm part of that. I'm not separate from that, and that's where a lot of healing takes place. Right there is just having the feeling that I'm part of something greater, and I I'm very connected to this mushroom. I'm very connected to the earth, and this is where my healing power comes from. Of course, then there's the, the scientific ideas and so forth, but and and which we can learn a lot from, uh, and I like that too. But when I'm out in the forest, that's when I get a lot of healing. That's when I see the reishi on the tree, and I can intentionally, very intentionally, take a piece of that and eat that, and make a connection with the mushroom. I feel it even if I'm 20 feet away from it. I there have been so many times when I've been walking in the woods and. Suddenly, I get an inkling to take a right turn and go over here behind a rock or something, and there is some reishi. And so I, I feel like if I'm out there and I'm mindful and I empty my mind, it's all about to me when I'm out in the woods is emptying my mind and just being and trying to absorb and, and be connected. And that's where psilocybin comes in, in my opinion, is that it can really help us become more connected to what is around us and what is happening there and the life that's there, and the healing that's there. It helps us connect to that and helps us open us up to that and helps us see that we're, our mind is so busy and it can help us be aware of that. So that medicine, but yes, the spirit part of it is very important, but I don't look at it again as a some kind of supernatural power. I look at it as, as th this is the spirit that we all are part of and that I'm imbibing that spirit. Yes, mushrooms are very full of spirit that represent where they were growing in these beautiful woods with these beautiful trees and all the animals and insects. This is, this is bringing that into my body. It's like food. It's like really conscious food as opposed to, to soybeans grown in mega farms in Kansas and, and eating a soy burger. I mean, to me, that's the, that's like, that's like taking, taking Prozac or something, you know, I'm eating it out of my garden and I'm growing it in my soil and, I'm connected to that. So I don't know if that answers, you know, or, or if that sounds reasonable, but that that's my take on it is that I do feel a great spirit in nature and in mushrooms, 
but it's not a magical power so much as it is a lot of spirit throughout it all that I'm part of. It doesn't have to be reasonable, but that was exactly, that was eminently reasonable. And I think a great description elucidating the feelings so many of us have that I'm convinced is something we just don't have the tools to measure yet. You talk about an energy or vibe. We all know there's something to that, to every piece of matter that surrounds us. We know there's some kind of energetic We're connected. force to it. Yeah, we're connected. There's something, there's some underlying, whether you want to call it a morphogenic field or a source field, or even I'm going to call it, we're, we're all connected. And in your book, I know it focuses much more on, not strictly, but on the science, on the practical use, but there is this element of connection that I think really goes hand in hand with this kind of more conscious worldview is recognizing the things that we can't necessarily measure through standard instrumentation. And I've often argued maybe the human body is the scientific instrument that's measuring these things it is. that can receive and understand these things. Oh, and it it's just beautiful to hear how you've married those two epistemologies or those two things together because you are very much one foot very grounded in science and all the way down to the molecular level. And then you're also, on the other hand, able to understand the ineffable connection between all things that's so important. It is. I'll, I'll never, as a scientist, after 10 years of hard science training, I'm not going to get rid of, you know, I'm still connected to spirit fully. It's just a relief to know they exist together. And I think that's one of the best ways forward. You know, so many times we kind of put it as that dichotomy. This is kind of the airy, more spiritual stuff. This is the grounded science. And right. But I think as right, these things true. are blended more and more, that makes the path of, you know, here's how we actually move forward, taking the all the relevant concepts from both these ways of seeing the world. Absolutely. And just to bring it back to the folks listening and how they can use this, is the main takeaway, you know, hey, more beneficial plants, more medicinal mushrooms, start consuming them more into your diet, you know, better if you can find them, or are there products out there, and you don't have to name specific products, but are there products out there that you feel comfortable saying, this is a good supplement, this is good to add in as well, just that advice for how everyone listening can more effectively use herbs and specifically medicinal mushrooms. Yes. Well, there are some good products out there. Again, test your products with a starch test. That's important because you don't want to be buying starch. That's a lot of money, 38 bucks for a bottle of capsules. Go with powders over capsules. If you can, you're going to get a much better value in a bag of powder than you do capsules. You can incorporate it in your diet in, in many different ways. I don't like taking a lot of capsules myself. I, I think it's good to have the powder mix it into smoothies, mix it, put it in your food again, soups or whatever. It's not going to taste bad. Most of the mushrooms taste kind of mushroomy and they're not bad tasting. And again, yeah, make your own products, make your own powders. Again, it's step by step in my book. And uh, there are some good companies out there, though. I, I do know that there are some conscious companies. Just generally, I tend to go with domestic producers over mushrooms that are coming from China. One thing I know is that some manufacturers of blocks where mushrooms are growing out of that you buy the block, shiitake block or whatever, some companies are basically buying the blocks from China. So the blocks are all set up and manufactured in China. Then they're shipped over all the way 3,500 miles and then they're sold. And then because they fruit here in, in this country, 
they can be they can call them domestically produced. So keep in mind that that you know you might ask your supplier, are the blocks coming or the mushrooms coming from China? The other thing is China has a lot of pollution. Uh, it's well known the water, the air. Even if the mushrooms are organically grown in China, there's still the air and the water. The water can be filtered, but the air typically is not. A lot of these mushrooms are grown outdoors in Quonset huts and maybe even in the earth, even in the soil. Like Rishi, typically they bury the log halfway in the soil. The fruiting bodies, I've seen pictures of like a whole football field full of logs half buried and uh, Rishi fruiting bodies coming up out of them. So those are cut. Very, It's labor intensive, but it's very cheap to do it in China. So manufacturers are saving a lot of money and domestic producers of the blocks of organic mushrooms, they're having a problem because, because sometimes it, people don't even know that the mushrooms are shipped over 3,500 miles from China and set up in China, and sometimes they're billed as domestic. Think about the energy that it takes to ship over those blocks and those mushrooms from China. That's a lot of oil. That's a lot of Middle Eastern oil. That's a lot of energy. So I go with domestic when I can. Small manufacturers are great. More and more small businesses are starting. I know a number of people that, that have herb farms that are now starting to grow mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms. That's great. They're growing them organically. They're growing them locally. I'm really in support of that. We have to start supporting more local by far. We, we can't be outsourcing all of our foods and, and products. That just isn't sustainable, is it? We all know that. We can't use the oil. We can't use the packaging and all that. We have to start focusing more on local. So find the local. Uh, you can go to the American Mycological Society website. They have a guide of all kinds of growers in this country and mushroom clubs and organizations. So just go on their website. I have the link in my book, by the way. And uh, may I mention also that I am going to be doing a seven-week class through the SHIFT network that I'm going to go into a lot of these topics that we've discussed in, in great detail. So if you want to sign up for that, you can go on my website, ChristopherHobbs.com. I've got a link to the SHIFT class on the front page. Also, you can follow me on Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram and YouTube. Through all of your different books, your YouTube channel, the courses you're starting to do, I mean... You can go as deep as you want to go into medicinal mushrooms, into herbalism, and really empower yourself with this knowledge. Because from what you've laid out, I mean, this is so approachable. If you know what to work with, you know what you're doing, you know some rules of thumb of how to be guided through what is this emerging landscape fraught with, I don't want to say fakes and scams, but you know, fraught with stuff that isn't what you think it is. It's really nice to get that knowledge and then be able to make better informed decisions. Right. And I have to ask, you know, the inspiration for writing this book, especially at this time, you know, we're talking about the shroom boom, medicinal mushrooms are becoming the most popular thing out there. But what was the inspiration for you delivering the book at this time? And what do you hope people take away from reading it? So we've talked about it. We've talked about some of the themes it covers, but what's your main takeaway you hope people get from reading the book? Well, yes. Thank you for asking about that. The book was... I did the first edition in 1989, which is just a little pamphlet. I did the second edition in 1995, which was very science-based. And the only book out there at the time, 1995, <clears throat> was pretty unknown. 
So it's still in print, by the way. It's just called Medicinal Mushrooms, and it's still in print. And it does have a lot of folklore in it, more than this book may have. The new book has been about three years in the planning. So I wanted to write a more scientifically oriented book and still retain the practical side of how do you do it, how to use it, how to apply it, why would I want to incorporate it in my life, and so forth. Also, there's a section on growing, how to grow mushrooms. There's a section on psilocybin, hallucinogenic mushrooms, reviewing all the clinical trials, and how to make medicines at home step-by-step step and showing the pictures on how to do each step. Uh, this is three, three or four years in the planning, and I just didn't get it done. And then finally, Story called me a couple of years ago and said, do you want to, you want to write a book and, uh, for us? And I said, sure. Uh, I was going to publish it myself, but then, then I thought, and they were so incredible. The job that they, they hired a beautiful photographer that's really an artist, a beautiful artistic photographer. And this book is visually stunning. It's also really high quality paper. It's got heavy, heavy textured paper on the outside. It's all stitched. The binding is stitched. I mean, this is a fantastic book, just uh, production-wise. And it's really a lifetime of, of research and study that I put into this book. But it's, you know, it, it's an evolution, but it, it's been a long time in coming for this particular iteration of it. And we're going to, there's a German edition coming out. It's already been translated into German. And uh, there'll be another edition of this new one coming out. There's an update coming soon that makes some corrections, but, but it's pretty much all sold out already. They printed 15,000 copies and, and it's almost all sold out after a couple months. So that, that's the good news of how much interest there is in mushrooms out there. Oh, that's terrific to hear. And yeah, I'm not surprised with the explosion of people interested in mushrooms. And I do recommend it as a primer for anyone who wants to not only learn about the effects of the mushrooms, which is amazing. I love big tomes full of scientific information and studies, but then that practical element of how we can actually use it, how we can grow it, how we can process our own medicines. I mean, that to me just takes it to this next level of being so usable and making this thing so approachable because that's one of the things about medicinal mushrooms. They're doesn't have to be a lot of mystery around it. There doesn't have to be, I mean, you can make it as approachable as possible. That That's a beautiful thing. And I had some much longer range kind of big questions. Maybe I'll throw just one or two of those out there. Thinking kind of huge picture as someone who has the background that you do working in this field for decades, coming from a generational heritage of herbalists, of folk herbalists. For you, what do you think the future of herbal medicine is? Uh, you know, you're talking about the corporate hand coming in and commercializing things and not making kind of that highest intention type of medicine that's really good for everyone. At the same time, you're talking about grassroots, like people taking herbalism into their own hands, practicing it in their own life. What do you think the future of herbalism, though, is as we stand today with modern interest surging and some of these different influences you've talked about? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> I just laid a massive question at your feet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there's obviously, there's been a progressive movement towards more natural medicine. We know that. People are, are kind of fed up with the side effects of drugs and surgery. And what can I do to prevent disease in the first place? And that's what herbalism is all about. Herbalism, it's not like either or we're going to take a natural medicine like St. John's wort or Prozac. That's not really what it's about. Yes, that's what the, the, the news media often poses it as. 
Like I remember when St. John's wort really hit the big time in, in the mid 1990s. And I remember some doc, uh, somebody saying, it's a natural Prozac with no side effects. And so that was their take on it. And no, it's, that's n nothing to do with it, really. I mean, that's how it's posed by the news media. And sometimes, and a lot of people maybe think that way. But, but really, herbalism is about taking responsibility for our health, learning more about what's going on inside of our body, and also looking at our health holistically in the sense of that the, the climate affects us, the season affects us, our energetics plays a big role in how we interact with our medicine. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it drying? Is it moistening? And then we start learning more. You know, we could do tongue diagnosis. We could look at our own tongue. Chinese medicine has influenced Western herbalism a lot. It's really becoming a world herbalism. We can start looking in, looking at, at our tongue and, and look at the coating on it. Uh, look in the mirror. I, I recommend everybody that's listening to this podcast, look at your tongue. Does it have a thick coating? Is it yellow? Is it white? Is it patchy? Is the coating gone so that you're completely gone? Well, these are all signs of what's going on inside of our metabolism, inside of our gut, inside of our, our body. So herbalism is about looking, looking at our body in a, a holistic sense that we're part of the bigger picture of life and we're affected by our diet, we're affected by the seasons, by the temperature, we're affected by our emotional interactions with people, we're affected by a lot of different things and how to look at health and disease in a more holistic way and how to prevent disease from even happening. I can assure you that when you think about diabetes, cancer, heart disease, are these things that we want? We don't want these things. Then why do we put up with it? Why do we put up with these corporations and greed telling us what to eat and luring our taste buds with sugar, fat, and salt and bright packaging in every step of our life, in gas stations and every vending machines, everywhere we go, they're there. And we're going to grab those Fritos. Or we're going to grab that Snickers bar or whatever. You know, it's lighting our brain up like cocaine does. So why do we put up with it? That's my big question. When I talk about herbalism, Herbalism asks the question, why are we putting up with getting diabetes and heart disease and cancer in the first place? We don't want those diseases. And yet we put up with it. We just go along with it. That's crazy. I mean, you can't write this stuff if you had a script writer, like you couldn't write it. You couldn't make it up. Why would people eat the type of this packaging foods that, you know, that adulterate your taste buds for decades when you know very well you're going to get heart disease and cancer and and diabetes, why do we put up with it? That's the question. And the herbalism asks that question. Don't put up with it. Start looking at your life and your health as part of everything that we do. Every, everything we do plays a role. Every choice that we make every day, everything we put in our mouth. And if we're eating herbs rather than pills, than Prozac, it's going to make a big difference. It's going to make a huge difference. We're not only going to feel better. Hey, I'll tell you one thing. When you consider benzodiazepines, that are prescribed for anxiety. Well, guess what the number one side effect of, of, of this medicine is, Ativan. Don't say anxiety. Anxiety, folks. Insanity. Why do we put up with it? And why? Because, because these drugs are, are manufactured to bind into our binding sites in our body and our cellular binding sites so strongly that, yeah, it has a powerful effect. It can throw us off of a symptom, 
but it binds so powerfully, it basically takes the receptor sites out of commission. So therefore, our own natural hormones, our own natural signaling to make us feel good if we go for a run or get a hug, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It takes weeks to build new receptor sites. So this is a long conversation, Darren. It, you know, we could go on and on with this for, for longer. It's really fascinating. Uh, I'm happy to come on again if you want to just focus on something you know more along those lines. But, but yes, I, my main message is don't put up with it. Don't put up with being just a, a pawn of, of, the gre- of, of the greed. It it's not, doesn't make any sense when you really sit down and still your mind and think about it. And it gets back to that idea of unconsciousness. And I think all of us have been there. I've been there for parts of my life. Me too. And you're guided by drives that you don't understand, that you don't think about. And there's a certain unburdened nature of that kind of existence where you're just guided around by external stimuli. But when you talk about consciousness and mindfulness, suddenly you start thinking about these things. And then it's much easier to kind of break out of it other than some of the physiological addiction that occurs, like you're talking about with receptor sites, with fat and sugar. You know, and what I'm struck by so much is this whole practice of herbalism as you're seeing it, you hit it right on the head. It's it's really grounded in our expanding understanding of ecology, which is so interesting. Yeah. When you put the ecology at the center of things, suddenly this looks so valid. When you start recognize that Absolutely. your body is full of communities of organisms, your skin is covered with communities of organisms, and there are these inputs in an ecology that you can't ever isolate out one single variable. Just thinking about community ecologies, you understand it. You can't ever pick one variable, adjust it, and think you know what that outcome is going to be. So you have to look at this whole system. You have to understand that ecology, exactly. and that's well to said. me that adds validity because I think to me that's one of the frontiers of science right now is really starting to understand community down to the microscopic, all the way out to the macroscopic, and this really lifestyle embodied by herbalism seems to integrate those kind of insights more than, you know, whatever it is we're doing now, if you call it modern medicine, or it doesn't seem to be as grounded in those emerging principles of how our body and how systems, biological systems are actually working. Right, exactly. That's well said. Health really is about ecology and herbalism is too. It's an integral part of that. Well, I hope that consciousness reigns and that an ecologically based system of medicine or wellness or whatever you want to call it is the direction we head in. And I think with people like yourself kind of giving us the tools, even the language, but the the perspectives to really embrace that gives us something to go on. And I will say that having made small amounts of these changes, it is something that once you get the momentum it's very easy to suddenly see those red and yellow bright packaging and realize that means to stay away. And you start making much (laughs) different decisions once you get started. Absolutely. Well, we've talked about the new book. We've talked about the course coming up. Just remind everyone again where they can find your work and we'll put links to all the web addresses and everything in the show notes as well. I'm really being a lot more active on social media these days. So I'm on Facebook and I have a professional page, a public figure page, Dr. Christopher Hobbs. You can follow me there. There's more about my seven week course coming up. I do post little things on Instagram and I've been putting more videos up on YouTube. 
I have a course I teach at the University of Massachusetts. And if you're interested in taking a full-on course, four-unit transferable course, lab course, at the University of Massachusetts, Stockbridge, Amherst, <clears throat> I'm starting that course coming up uh, on September 1st. And it's a really in-depth course on herbal med all aspects of herbal medicine with discussion groups, lots and lots of, of my videos discussing herbal medicine. Uh, then you can sign up for that at the University of Ma Massachusetts. Uh, Amherst. But yeah, I love I love getting on. Uh, so thanks for having me there. And that's it's, you're a good uh, interviewer. And uh, yeah, I, I found it very enlightening. Well, certainly I was the one over here very, feeling enlightened, kind of getting the channel, these decades of experience. And I'll kind of wrap things up with just the three questions I like to finish up with all my guests. And these can be as brief or as broad as you want. But the first one might be the toughest. And that is just a mushroom or fungus that you love and why it could be something we've talked about something that just popped into your head or an all-time favorite but just a mushroom or fungus that you love and why when it comes to edible and delicious i can't i can't pass up a porcini bolitas edulis <laughs> and butter butter bolites and other bolites i just love them <clears throat> they're so big and beautiful and tasty and bountiful <clears throat> and when you find them it's just such a wonderful feeling to find a, a big porcini and trim the, the base of it and wash it and maybe cut it in half and see how many worms are in the middle of it. But but they, they're just so fragrant, so delicious. You can even eat some pieces of it for, raw. And so as far as edible mushrooms go, I, I couldn't think of anything else but, uh, but Boletus edulis or, or one of the edible bolites. When it comes to medicine, then it's gotta be reishi. I mean, I'm just so in love with the look of reishi, I harvest, I go up and make a pilgrimage in the high Sierra to collect Ganoderma sugi and make medicine, eat it fresh like the ancients did. And, and so that's, that's definitely my favorite uh, medicinal mushroom. You're having your own version of that pilgrimage to get the medicine. And when it comes to Porcini, I remember hearing a story, I believe it was in one of Gary Linkoff's books about how at one time Romans would even trade Porcini or Belitis edulis as currency. And I thought that's the monetary system I can get behind. Yeah, I could get behind that, definitely. Trading Boletus edulis. So yeah, some fantastic answers. And then this other question, you know, is pretty broad and you can kind of pick whatever angle you want to take with this. But what has the relationship you've developed, this intimate relationship with medicinal mushrooms, just with fungi in general? Uh, what has that relationship given to you? You know, that can be things that's taught you, spiritual perspectives, ecological enlightenments, though I think you're on much of that path already. Uh, what has that relationship with fungi given to you? When I think of fungi, the first thing I think of is transformative. I think mushroom and fungi are incredibly transformative, not only in our life when we bring more in, in many, many ways that we've discussed, one of them being getting out in the woods and, and just being in their environment and habitat and being part of it. But in many other ways that spiritually, in all ways, I find mushrooms are very transformative. Of course, in the environment, they're transformative because they secrete powerful enzymes that break down the wood and break down the leaf litter. They break it down and they transform it and they make that energy available to all the other creatures in the forest and in our environment. So they are the great transformers. They transform everything and they, they are so giving 
they share energy be between trees through their networks, but they're constantly transforming things. And so in our, in our world, in our life, in our health, they're the great transformers. So that's what I, I think what I would say about them. And as so many people experience with psilocybin, they transform the inner life of so many people. So yeah, that is the symbol, that is the talisman that can apply on so many levels for mushrooms. And then the final question, and we really hit on this, but just as we continually as kind of Western European or maybe just modern society deepens our relationship with fungi and mushrooms and learn more and more, what do you think the highest aspirations are? I mean, what do you hope for our future with mushrooms? Well, I think what I can say to that is we know we're facing a lot of problems in this world. We're facing a lot of really almost insurmountable problems. Some scientists say that we could be extinct within 100 years. And based on the fires that are happening around me in California here, burning some of the places that I've known almost all my life, burning it to the ground, and of course the flooding, the rising oceans, the pathogens, of course the COVID that is rapidly mutating and exposing the fact that some of us really are not very rational and they're just going with these with these crazy notions that that humans can have like you know and and not guard, not wearing masks and not caring for each other uh, just on ideology so we're facing insurmountable problems and i think that we've seen by now that we can't count on politicians to really take care of business here are we really going to put our future in the hands of politicians in these basically dysfunctional, self-serving politicians that we're seeing out there. We've seen what they've done. We've seen that we, they turn people against each other. They, we've seen that they use fear as one of their main playbooks for holding on to their power. And we see that they actually fully exercise their greed. And, and then we fully see that they don't really have the good in, and good intentions towards the people. They don't have the, the, you know, the health of the people in mind when they pass these laws. So for all of those reasons, there's really what we can turn to is that we need a, a whole global transformation of consciousness. And I think I could say, I could posit that we are in the start, uh, really, where there have been cycles of it. You could think about the stone date theory as a start. But I, I think now that we may be in, in a place where we can see this incredible growth and expansion of consciousness in humans throughout the planet. And this is what's needed. This is what really is needed right now. And I can certainly say that psilocybin and, and mushrooms in general can be a big part of that transformation. They can be agents and helpers and allies in this transformation that is so needed. I mean, some of the most powerful words spoken on this podcast, and it's funny because so many people end up voicing that similar realization. And I will say when confronted with all those problems, you know, we have to be very careful about how we balance giving people, those politicians you talked about, corporations, the power to supposedly fix them. Because once they have those powers, how do they then choose to use them? They're obviously dysfunctional. 
Absolutely. And it's by this decentralized, again, taking cues from the fungi, this decentralized network of conscious people rising up and establishing new norms and establishing new ways of mediating our own relationships without these corrupt people inserting themselves in between it or these corrupt corporations. Absolutely. That is the future I think a lot of us are hoping for as well. And it's just so funny that people, when they've researched mushrooms, herbalism as well, and they've researched these topics for so long, this is the the realization that seems to always come out. And so I, I think it's the right one. I think that's the transformation that we I need. know it's the right one. And one more thing that's very important for us all to remember in regards to mushrooms too. We are not the only species on this planet that has rights. That's a paradigm shifting realization when you think about that we are not the only species that has rights. Wow. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, Dr. Hobbs, really about everything, uh, but especially medicinal mushrooms. So thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing a lot of deep insights with us, sharing your time, your attention and focus and beautiful perspectives. Uh, it's really been an honor to have you on. So thank you again for joining us on Mushroom Hour. Thanks, Darren. I much appreciate it. And I've really had a good time uh, and love your style and, and your thinking as well. So I think it was a meeting of the minds here.